If you have a Bible, turn with me to Job uh, chapter 1. This is a brand new, the first week of a brand new series called If God is Good. And I have to tell you, the Lord has been so kind to me this week, so gracious in the way that He has uh, ministered to me through my sermon prep. I've been looking forward to this series for a long time. Job is one of the most fascinating books of the Bible. It's also one of the most artistic books. It has some of the most colorful, uh, powerful, poetic, poignant language of any uh, book of the Bible. Uh, it, has, it has everything that a good story has. It has drama. It has uh, tragedy. It has humor. It has love. Um, it has suspense. It has everything that we might expect uh, from a good story. And this is a a true story, of course, that reveals to us something about the nature and character of God. One day, a couple of weeks ago, I had a doctor's visit in the morning, just a regular sort of year-end checkup, and then uh, my wife was at work and my daughter was at school, and, and so after that, I thought, well, I'm going to run to uh, Verizon. I'm going to see about an upgrade for my phone, so I went to Verizon, uh, didn't get a new phone, um, but then I went after that, I went to Tzatziki's for lunch. And then when I was done with uh, lunch at Tzatziki's, I noticed that, that I needed an oil change, so I drove over, drove over to uh, Meineke to get my oil change. Now, there's a reason I'm telling you all these details, um, and it's not because I've, I have endorsements from any of these places, but uh, I went to Meineke, I got my oil change, and then as I, I got home, I realized I noticed that I had an unusual uh, charge on my uh, debit card, so I called Wells Fargo, and I, I made a, a claim there, I filed a claim, and they were very professional about it, and so that kind of wrapped up my day. Well, toward the end of the evening, I opened up my email, and I noticed I had five new emails, one from every one of those places, asking me to rate my satisfaction with the service that I got. So every single one was very concerned uh, that I was happy uh, about the service, from the doctor's office to Meineke, Verizon, and all the places uh, that I mentioned. We can hardly do anything, hardly experience anything without someone wanting, wanting to know from us, how, how was that? What was your satisfaction level like? Well, let me uh, into the, enter into the fray a little bit, and let me ask you this. How would you, if I asked you, how would you rate 2022 in terms of a scale of happiness, what would you give it on a scale of 1 to 10? 1 being, this was the most miserable uh, worst year of my entire life. I, I don't even know how I'm still uh, here today. Um, and 10 being, that was the most amazing, incredible life of my, my whole life, uh, one of just unmitigated bliss. What would you give it if you were to rate? So think about that for a moment. Would you give it a, a 2022? Would you give it a 5? Uh, would you give it a, a 7? Would you give it a 3? If you give it a 10, just don't tell anybody. We don't want to hear it, okay? I mean, it's, we don't want to hear about your amazing life. Uh, what would you give it? Would you give it, would you give it a one? You know, for some of you, maybe uh, you'd give 2022 a one. You think this was just, it was just a horrible, horrible uh, year. Um, I would say very few of us would probably give it a 10, and, and hopefully not very many of us would give it a one, but maybe the answers would range anywhere in the middle. For all of us, 2022 had some highs, had some lows, uh, but for many, and many even in this room this morning, the lows were devastating. Uh, for some of you, uh, some people lost people they loved to death way too soon, humanly speaking. Uh, some in this room I know lost jobs last year, maybe, maybe took a, 
significant pay cut. Some went through a painful breakup. Some of you maybe went through a, a devastating divorce. Some were diagnosed with cancer. Some suffered through horrific accidents. Some uh, had a heart attack or a stroke. Some, uh, again, were diagnosed with, with any number of diseases. Some had an adult child walk away from the faith. Some uh, had a child tell them, I've been living a lie. I'm, I'm not the person that I always thought I was. And that had uh, uh, devastating uh, implications. Some had people they loved, deep friends, move away, maybe to a different state. Some suffered, again, in a variety of ways. The list goes on. And even if you didn't experience any of those things that I mentioned, you still went through hardship. You still had difficulty, and you still suffered exhaustion and, and frustration and pain. Uh, and, and even if 2022 was a 10 for you, even if it was just the most amazing year for you, that doesn't mean that 2023 will be the same. Trouble may be lurking. Well, how do we respond when life crushes us? What do we do when life sort of knocks the wind out of us? Where do we turn? How do we make sense of tragedy in our own lives? Where do we find the resolve, the strength to, to keep fighting uh, yet another day? How, do we, how does our view of God change when we go through a very difficult season? What do we think differently now maybe about God? How we answer those questions speaks to our worldview. Worldview is um, sort of a philosophical word that refers to the way that we see life and humanity and the world and everything that goes on. And one assumption of just about every worldview from all the way to places in the eastern part of the world to the western part of the world is that good people are supposed to have good things happen to them. And bad people deserve bad things. And then we read a book like Job, where a very, very good person has very, very bad things happen to him. So bad, in fact, that some have actually labeled this book a parable. It's, it's a satire. It's fiction. It's not real history, they say, because no one could maintain his faith amid such a terrible ordeal, such intense suffering that happens so quickly and so relentlessly. But Job does maintain his faith. Even though at times it looks like he will give in, perhaps, and even curse God the way that he's been advised to do, he never does. He maintains his faith. Job demands answers from God, and God never provides them. Instead, God just pulls the curtain back a little bit and shows Job something of his power and his majesty and his glory and his wisdom so rather than give Job specific explanations for all the things that he goes through, and we're going to see those over this, the next 14 weeks or so, uh, God takes Job on a, something of a virtual tour of the universe, and he allows Job to see behind and to see again uh, God's power and majesty. And, and God asks Job, really in a manner of speaking, could you run the universe now that you've seen it? Do you have the insight, the ability, the wisdom, the power to run this universe? Again, it doesn't really solve Job's problems, but it does give Job perspective and humility and hope, and in the end, it would actually even deepen his faith. And that's really my prayer for you and for me this, uh, for this sermon series, that God would give us a greater perspective, um, greater humility, deeper faith, 
uh, that we would have a, a fuller understanding of who God is even in the middle of our suffering, and that what God, again, would increase our joy in Him. So let me give you just a couple of disclaimers before we uh, launch into this. One is we're not going to cover the book of Job verse by verse, so in some of the shorter books of the Bible, the letters and so on, we'll look at them verse by verse, but um, there's too much repetition and, and sort of prolonged dialogue to do that. Uh, the great reformer John Calvin preached through the book of Job, and it took him 159 sermons, uh, and even that he skipped over certain sections. So we won't do verse by verse. And the second disclaimer, which, which is very important, and that is really more of a reminder, and that is that Job is, this story of Job is part of a bigger story. So even though it has sort of a clean beginning and a clean ending, and it, it starts with a prologue and ends with an epilogue, it's actually part of a much bigger story, um, a story about a holy God who, who created the world and everything in it for His own glory. That's a, a God who uh, delights in His creation, and in fact, in particular, those who bear His image. And a God who is so loving and merciful that He would actually send His Son to redeem, to buy back that very sin-cursed world from uh, its slavery. And so keep that in mind. That'll, that'll help to make sense of how this individual, the, the individual narratives we look at in chapters, uh, how they actually point us to Christ and also help to make sense why every single message from the book of Job will, uh, will, will feature Christ as the hero. And so uh, I think it's going to be a great series. And again, just really super grateful to the Lord for the way He ministered to me by His Spirit in this preparation, the sermon prep. And, um, and again, I hope it will, it will strengthen our faith. I hope it will increase our joy in, in, in God and enable us to suffer well and, and actually fill us with expectation, expectation of what the Lord might do. So with that said, let's get into it. Uh, Job chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 1 through 12 this morning, but let me begin uh, by reading verses 1 through 3. Here reads the word of the Lord. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. So uh, some of the books of the Bible are named after the author. See that? In the Old Testament, you know, the, some of the major prophets, minor prophets. Some of the books of the Bible are named after the recipients, that is, uh, to whom the book was written. We see that, you know, particularly in the New Testament with some of the, the epistles. There are a few books of the Bible that are named after the character featured in the book, and such is the case with uh, Job. But who in the world is Job? Who is the one after whom this book is named? Well, from what I just read, we saw that Job was a very wealthy and prominent man. He was uh, the greatest uh, of all the people of the East, which is verse 1, which is actually a huge statement. That's saying a lot. Um, he, he lived in the land of Uz. Uz was a territory in the ancient Near East. We don't know exactly where it was, uh, but it, we know it was in the ancient Near East, um, probably near uh, Edom, uh, which was south and east of Israel. It's the area that today we, we know as Jordan. Um, this is where Job and his family were likely established. There's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we're not told. We're not told who the author is. We're not told much about the historical background or historical situation. We're not told how, how Job, this non-Israelite, would come to worship Yahweh, the, the living God, the true and living God, the God of Israel. And the lack of, the, of detail in those areas is not really meant to 
to throw us off or distract us. Um, I think it's intentional in that the writer wants us to focus on the point, the point of the book, and that is that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are beyond our ways. He is just, even if everything in our lives suggests the opposite. He is faithful and true and just, and He has a love for His own that actually operates apart from merit or, or deserving. The fact that we're so much, there's so much we don't know about Job in a situation, again, it shouldn't, shouldn't throw us off. Uh, we do know, according to verse 1, that Job was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. Um, I mentioned this is a book filled with poetry. Well, one of the devices is called a parallelism. It's where sentences sort of complement or fill out a previous one. And here you have two sets of descriptors about Job. The first two really describe Job's sort of horizontal relationships. That is to say, he was a person who was known to be fair and, and equitable in, in the way he dealt with people. He was not someone that you could make an accusation against him and it would stick because he had such a high moral character and was known as such. So the first two were kind of about sort of, sort of horizontal relationships. And the next two descriptors really give us a, an insight into Job's relationship with God. And that is he really sought to please God and honor God and obey God in every aspect uh, of his life. Um, he feared God by, at least one way, by turning away from evil. He wasn't perfect. You'll hear me say that a lot throughout the series. He was not perfect. Um, no one is. But he walked closely with the Lord and he kept short accounts with God. And so this is very high praise uh, for this man named Job. Now look at verses 4 through 6. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So not only was Job a righteous man who sought to obey God in every area of his life, um, he also led his family well. His family, you know, he, he, he had launched them out. He had sent them out, released them into the world. They had their own homes, and, and they, his, the, all of his kids, they still loved their siblings. They still uh, cared about each other. And on each one's birthday, they would have these major feasts, week-long feasts. I know some of you, I've seen from Facebook, you don't celebrate your birthday. You celebrate your birth month or your birth week, and that's okay. That's what Job's kids did. They had a full week of celebrating uh, on their birthday. Seven sons, seven days of feasting for each one. Now, I, don't, I have no idea why the daughters didn't get to celebrate their birthday. Uh, I couldn't find that anywhere. But the sons, they throw these big parties, these massive parties, and they invite everybody else in the family over. There's no indication that these parties were, anything was sinful about the parties in and of themselves. But Job is concerned that what his sons and daughters might do at these parties, and, and more specifically, how they may talk about or even think about God. So Job takes on a sort of a priestly role for his children. He was not a priest uh, in the technical sense, uh, as one who was appointed by God to offer sacrifices in the temple on behalf of his people. But as the family patriarch, as the, the father and the grandfather of this uh, clan, um, Job offered open-air sacrifices, just as you know, we see other patriarchs in the Bible do. 
Now, why would he do that, though? Well, again, Job is concerned, verse 5, that his children had perhaps sinned or cursed God in their hearts. The problem was not the birthday parties. The problem was the sinfulness of the human heart. The Australian theologian Francis Anderson writes, we need not suppose that they were, they'd spent all their time in roistering. That's actually a, it's an old English word. It comes from a French word. It has to do with obnoxious, rude, loud partying. Um, so they didn't spend all their time in roistering. There's no hint of drunkenness or license or laziness. Job expresses no anxiety on this score, although he is aware of the danger they might slip into profanity. And by profanity, he's not worried they may say a cuss word. He's worried that in their celebration, they might profane God. Even in their thoughts, they might have thoughts about God that are not true and right about God. Job is concerned that this might happen in their revelry. Job knows something about the human heart, even his own heart, and the hearts of his children. And even more importantly, Job knows something about the majesty and holiness of God and this is what drives him to, to sort of intercede on behalf of his children. So here's our first point this morning, and the latter two will come more quickly. But the foundation for righteousness is a high theology proper and a low anthropology. Now, theology proper is just a, the area of doctrine that's about God. And so what I'm saying there is, is a high view of God. Anthropology is the study of man. A low anthropology is a low view of mankind, low view of humanity, a low view even of ourselves. So even though the point of this book is not be like Job or, or, or learn to suffer like Job did, this is a book about God's wisdom, His sovereignty, His justice, His mercy, His power. We're still called to be obedient children of God. And the starting point for that is the recognition that we're really not good people at the core. In light of God's holiness, we are sinful, selfish people. We need grace. We need humility. We need repentance. We need forgiveness. This is really a foundational understanding if we're to live rightly before God. Job is a righteous man. He wants to do everything he can to please God. He wants his children to please God and glorify God. He wants his life to be a testimony to God's faithfulness and grace. But he realizes that God is holy. And we as humans are sinful and broken. And even in our times of celebration, we are likely to dishonor God with our thoughts. I am, you've heard this before about me, I am what you might call a preternatural optimist. I, I, I tend to see the best, I tend to expect the best in things, and I focus on the positives, and I, and I tend to believe that the result that we want so badly is the result that will come to fruition. Um, just to, for example, every time I play golf, I think this is the round that I'm going to shoot par. I've never even come close to par, but I, I actually really truly believe that every time I get to the tee box on hole number one, this will be the day. And uh, I, you know, I'm mocked by my friends, uh, friends I've played with for years, they mock me because if a ball... Even if my ball is 220 yards away from the green, stuck in thick grass, uh, covered by rocks and leaves, I get out my three wood and I expect to hit the ball on the green. I really do. I mean, I never actually do that. That's what I expect, though. I, I'm an optimistic person. 
But I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic when it comes to human goodness. And certainly not my own goodness. I know better. I don't believe the best about my own intentions. I don't believe the best about my own motivations. I don't believe the best about uh, my own ability to do good. I have a very low anthropology, which is not a negative take on humanity. It's just a realistic one. It's just one that fits with the Bible's description. A low anthropology is a recognition that we are more sinful and perverse and broken than we even realize. One theologian writes, hoping in ourselves and our ability to create good vibes, you've heard people say this, positive energy or light and love is like thinking we can make chocolate cupcakes out of horse manure. Sure, for a few seconds, maybe even a minute or two, we can sit in a dark room and believe that humanity is bootstrapping its way to a collective hashtag best life now. But then we talk to another human being who wants something from us. Or we pause to reflect on our bosses, our in-laws, our spouses, and there it is again, good old-fashioned sin and pride making itself known. And certainly, if we're courageous enough to think about our own hearts and our own motives and what drives us, we see the presence of sin. The great American theologian Jonathan Edwards once said in a treatise uh, responding to some of the revivals in his day, in a treatise entitled Some Thoughts Concerning Revival, he wrote, there's not so much difference before God between children and grown persons as we are ready to imagine. We are all poor, ignorant, foolish babes in His sight. If you want your worship of God to be more meaningful, more soul-strengthening, if you want your spiritual life, life to, to, to experience a greater growth and, and peace, you've got to get lower with your anthropology and higher with your theology proper. I know you don't expect your pastor to tell you to get low, because I know that means something different on a dance floor. Um, but I'm telling you, if you want to thrive spiritually, that's what you're going to have to do. Now, don't run out here and tell somebody, my pastor told me to go home and get low. Um, I am telling you that, but context is important. Um, so we have to get lower with our anthropology and higher with our view of God. When we have a low anthropology, like Joe did, we're not so, we don't think the best of ourselves. We're not so uh, stunned when people sin against us. We're not so easily offended. We're not shattered by the evil in the world. We stand in the ready posture, as Job did, to offer a sacrifice of repentance continually, verse 5. Now, look at verses 6 through 12. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord." So we're not told a lot about this sort of heavenly court. Um, 
But we are told that the sons of God uh, met with God. These are probably angels who serve on what we might call the parliament of the universe. So they're there with God in this heavenly court. And then bogarting into the group is, in Hebrew, the Satan, uh, Satan. The, the word Hebrew, the, the word Satan means the accuser, the adversary. And Satan slithers into this heavenly court. God asks him, where have you been? Now, this is not because God doesn't know where Satan has been. God knows everything. Anytime God asks someone a question, we see this all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis, it's because God wants to engage that person in dialogue, purposeful dialogue. We might say God is going somewhere in this conversation, and certainly he is here. Satan tells God that he's been roaming around the earth, and then notice the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I have to confess to you, I've not preached the book of Job. In my memory, before I got to this, my sermon prep this week, I thought that Satan was the one who brought up Job. But actually, God brings up Job, and of course, it's intentional. Everything God does is intentional. Remember I said that this story is part of a bigger story. Well, the bigger story begins in a garden with this same devil who approaches our first parents, Adam and Eve, who are enjoying all that God has made, perfect beauty of his creation. And Satan actually, by way of deception, convinces Adam and Eve to sin against God, to rebel against the God who's made them. And as a result, God pronounces a curse on mankind, on, on all the world really, and also Satan. One aspect of the curse is that God would send one born of a woman who would actually deal a fatal blow to Satan himself, who would crush the head of the serpent. But God promised to redeem what Adam and Eve destroyed and subjected to decay and death. And that redemptive process actually started immediately, but unfolded slowly like a flower, petal by petal, stage by stage. Well, what is the evidence of God's redeeming work? Men, women, and children who are reconciled to God, brought to faith in God, who then want to obey God and serve and love neighbor. That's one of the evidences of God's redeeming work. Obedience, God-loving, and God-worshiping people. So in this heavenly council that I just read about, this probably took place, who knows when, but at least a thousand, maybe two thousand years um, you know, after creation, and perhaps Satan has forgotten about the curse that God has placed on him. Perhaps Satan thinks that what God promised, God actually has no plans of carrying out. But here God reminds him of, his own, of God's own redemptive work by, by showing here is a righteous man. Here's someone who's been transformed. Here's someone who's been redeemed. I love the way theologian Meredith Klein comments. He says, in effect, I don't know why you'd ever name your son Meredith, by the way, but he says, in effect, God was telling Satan that the ancient curse pronounced against him in Eden was in process of inexorable fulfillment. Out of mankind, in its covenant of death with the devil, God was reconciling to himself a new mankind, called to engage in holy war against the serpent, and promised in that warfare an ultimate, absolute triumph. So God, he actually brings up Job's name to Satan as a way to say, you know, I know maybe you think I've forgotten about the curse I pronounced against you. 
Maybe you think I've just been off in some other world ignoring what I said I was going to do. But I want you to consider Job because here is, here's evidence number one. Here's exhibit A of the fact that I am, in fact, redeeming the world. I am bringing men and women and children to saving faith in me and the promised one. Job uh, was a man brought to faith in God, a man who had no claim to God's covenant promises. Uh, but he is evidence that God is at work redeeming the world to himself by reconciling to himself a people who would walk in his ways, who would love what he loves, who would worship God and glorify him. And God points this out to Job. My pronouncement against you stands. My promise to redeem the world is in full effect and nothing will change it. Here's our second point. Every person who trusts and obeys God is a trophy of divine grace and evidence of God's active redemptive work. God says, don't think for a second, Satan, that I've forgotten about my plan. And don't think for a second that the curse that I pronounced on you is null and void or something I won't carry out. Consider my servant Job. Now, you, you may say, well, what does that have to do with me? And where do I find encouragement in that? Well, when you get discouraged, and it feels like the walls are closing in, and I know that's the case for some of you, when you go through any of those terrible things that I mentioned at the start of this message, and you think that God has forgotten about you, or maybe you think that God is no longer at work in the world or no longer at work in your life, consider the lives being transformed by the gospel. The people who were vicious God-haters, who were brought to repentance and faith and obedience. The people who are committed to obeying God in hardship, committed to suffering for the sake of the name of Christ, brought to saving faith. We heard two beautiful uh, testimonies on Christmas Day. And let that be an encouragement to you that God's plan of redemption is ongoing. It is still unfolding and it is unstoppable. He will strengthen your faith. He will keep you to himself. He is there for you right now. He is here. He is keeping you. And he will ultimately defeat Satan and all the powers of evil. The transformed lives that we see around us are the evidences of God's redemptive activity. But not the greatest evidence. Not the greatest evidence. The greatest evidence of God's active redemptive work would be the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which would happen, again, at least over a thousand years after Job's encounter with God. We don't know the exact date. By sending His Son, God provided forgiveness to those who would trust in Him so that all who believe in Jesus would be brought back to God, forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future, and guaranteed a place with God forever. And by raising Jesus from the dead, so He didn't just send Jesus to, to die in our place, those of us, we, we've all sinned against God in the need of a Savior. By raising Jesus from the dead, not only did God, God declare loudly and finally that, that the sacrifice of my Son was enough to cover your sin, but by it, God also demonstrated that He's making all things new. God is bringing life from death. The resurrection of Jesus is the indisputable evidence that God has not abandoned the world He's made, but continues to redeem it through the person and work of His Son. Because the Son of God took on human flesh and entered into real history and lived for us and died for us, conquered death by being raised from the dead, we can know for certain that Jesus will also return 
to consummate the kingdom that he ushered in with his birth. Death has no power over him. The grave cannot hold him. One day, all the enemies of Christ will be once for all destroyed and death will be no more. The story of Job, a blameless man who suffered as part of the wise and perfect plan of God, is meant to prepare us for the story of Jesus, the truly blameless one who suffered and died as part of the wise and perfect plan of a just God. Now, there's one more thing I want you to see from this passage. Satan and God get into this argument. God says, consider my servant Job, and Satan says, well, of course. Of course he follows you. Look what you've done for him. You've made everything he's, he touches prosper. You've given him the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to gold. Of course he's going to serve you. Why wouldn't he serve you? But take what he has. Take what he has and then see what happens. He won't serve you anymore. In fact, he'll actually curse you to your face. So not only does Satan call Job a hypocrite, says he's really just obeying God for the benefits, but he also, in effect, denies God's power to truly make someone new. He said, this guy's not changed at all. This guy's not been transformed. He's simply doing what brings him the most wealth. He's not concerned about your glory. He only serves you because of what you've given him. And for a reason known only to God, God allows Satan to blaspheme him in this way. And he actually permits Satan, verse 12, to take from Job everything Job owns. But the key to this exchange, at least the latter part of this section, is verse 12, the last part of verse 12. Only against him, this is the Lord speaking, do not stretch out your hand. And then we read, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan can do nothing apart from what our sovereign God allows. He may be the chief instigator of evil, or is the chief instigator of evil in the entire universe, but he's just a creature, weak and puny compared to our majestic creator God. And he has no authority or power except what God permits him to demonstrate or exercise for a season. So here's our last point. I want to use a quote from Martin Luther for the first half of the last point. Even the devil is God's devil. The accuser can do nothing except what God permits him to do. To say that even the, the devil is God's devil is not to suggest or imply that God is to blame for anything that the devil does, of course, uh, but only to say that Satan, as a creature, cannot do anything but what the Creator allows. When God tells Satan to stay, Satan has to sit there like a dog until God releases him. And when God tells Satan to go, Satan must flee. So to say it in a way that's hopefully more comforting, whatever mischief or evil that Satan orchestrates, it is always appointed by a sovereign and good God for the benefit of his children. Think about it this way. Somehow, somehow, mysteriously, even the machinations of the devil are ordained by God for our good. I can't explain it. I don't know how to put it in an outline. I don't know how to make a syllogism out of it, but I do know this is true. You may feel that Satan has you in his target today, and you may feel like that he's going to bend you until you break. Or maybe you feel like you're involved in a spiritual warfare that will definitely soon overtake you. Well, you can rest assured that God will not permit Satan to do one thing 
apart from his gracious plan for you, which is a plan that is for your good ultimately. This is not a promise against suffering. This is not a guarantee that life will go smoothly and easily, but a promise that God is faithful and just. Now, the one thing that Satan wants to do more than anything else is to cause us to despair over our sin in such a way that we doubt God's love or his forgiveness. Guilt and shame are Satan's most cherished weapons. Satan wants you to believe that no one, that, 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 that one sin you committed, that sin you committed will disqualify you, qualify you from God's love or cause God to turn against you or render his forgiveness of you null and void. Satan wants you to believe that you must work your way to God. You must earn your standing with God. And then he will come along and remind you, you can never do enough. Satan wants to turn the gospel into a law. He wants to turn the good news of God's salvation instead into something that we must do to earn it. Let me end with this. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier in this point. Martin Luther had really a fascinating and, I don't know, you call it a bizarre uh, sort of ongoing battle with the devil. At one point in 1521, he's in prison in Wartburg, and he's doing some translation work, and he got into some epic fights with the devil, even started throwing things at the devil. He didn't see the devil, but throwing things at where he thought the devil was. In a moment of frustration, Luther wrote this, the devil hounds me about a single sin until the world becomes too small for me. It's the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of the gospel. If I can hold on to the distinction between law and gospel, I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside. Even if I sinned, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account? In other words, Luther said that the, God, the devil just keeps trying to persuade me that it's all up to me. Salvation is all up to me. He keeps trying to persuade me I've got to earn it or I'll never be right with God. And he reminded Luther that Luther had too much sin to be right with God. He could never earn a right standing with him. But Luther would not succumb to the devil's cunning. He knew that the devil had no say in God's salvation. Not only can he do nothing except what the Lord permits him to do, he can never, ever pluck away one of God's elect. And so I say to you, not only does the devil have no power over you, and not only can the devil go only so far as the Lord allows, but neither he nor you nor I nor our own sin can steal us away from God. Our salvation is secure because it rests on Christ, the one who lived for us and died for us and whose righteousness is ours by faith alone. We're going to see the plight of Job, and it's going to be disturbing. But we're going to see throughout the series, we won't solve it in one sermon, we're going to see throughout the series just how God in all this is sovereign and just, merciful and true, faithful, and He always does what's best for His own and what is, brings Him the most glory. So looking forward to it and appreciate your prayers for, for this uh, sermon series and been encouraged by your comments. Let's pray.